Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. The John Vrionis of Unusual Ventures joins us today to discuss the DNA of startup success. We cover items including founders that are too focused on the how instead of the why, the role that suffering plays in success, arrogance versus humility, the three must-haves for every investment, John's thoughts on timing, the common reason why startups fail, requirements for raising a Series A in late 2019, why seed funding is dropping, the impact of late-stage mega funds, and finally, why LP makeup for a fund is critical for founders to understand. Quickly, I want to give a shout-out and congrats to Kevin Frechette. Tarek Alaruri and Victor Kush of the team at Fair Market for closing their $11 million Series A led by Insight Partners. It was a competitive round with a number of Tier 1 VCs vying to lead, and we were excited when they selected Insight. This was the first investment for Newstack Fund 1 when we invested in their pre-seed in May of 2018, and they have quickly grown into one of the, if not the hottest procurement SaaS startups in the country. I just had a chance to catch up with Tarek in Chicago yesterday, and he was generous enough to speak to our team about the key factors to early stage growth and raising capital. Congrats again to Fair Market. Also, before we jump into the episode, I want to mention that Newstack is hiring an analyst with a target start date of summer 2020. This is an entry-level position, but provides access to all aspects of running a venture firm, deal flow, capital raising, portfolio management, marketing and branding, and fund strategy. We're not shy about giving ownership to young, smart, tenacious, resourceful individuals that want to build a career in venture. All of the folks on our team own deal flow from the first look until close. If this sounds like a fit for someone in your network, please encourage them to visit newstack.vc where they can find our careers page and apply. With that, let's jump into the interview with John Vrionis of Unusual Ventures. John Vrionis joins us today from Menlo Park. John is the managing partner at Unusual Ventures. Unusual is a Silicon Valley-based venture firm with investments in Harness, Baller TV, Haven, and Arctic Wolf, among others. Prior to Unusual, John was a GP at Lightspeed Venture Partners for 12 years, where he invested in several successful companies, including MuleSoft, Nimble Storage, Datastax, and AppDynamics. He's number 63 on the Forbes Midas list of top investors of 2019. John, welcome to the program. Nick, thanks for having me. Great. Let's start out with your backstory. Can you kind of walk us through 
maybe some of your educational experience and then the path to venture? Happy to do it. Not that exciting, but uh, I'm from fairly rural Georgia originally. Ended up going to Harvard. My mom likes to say they needed one person from Georgia that year, so it worked out well for me. <laughs> I ended up playing soccer there, and for a couple years afterwards, I, I, tr- I tried to make it, but uh, wasn't good enough. And I ended up in Chicago to get a master's in computer science and spent time working for uh, a corporate venture firm at the time. Uh, I lived through the dot-com crash there and came to California in 2001 to work for a startup and then went to Stanford for business school. After business school, I, I worked almost 12 years at Lightspeed. And then last January, so January 2018, Joe T. Bonzel and I, who was the founder of AppDynamics, we started Unusual Ventures together. Got it. So what prompted the decision to, to leave Lightspeed? It was a great experience. When I joined, it was you know less than 10 people. And when I left, it was probably north of 100 and something with offices in India and Israel and China. You know, we went from a $480 million fund to many funds and multiple billions under management. But my real passion has always been investing in, you know, entrepreneurs working with founders at the very beginning, you know, in the, what people now call the seed stage. You know, back in 2006, there was no such thing. It was called angel investing. And it was where I had the most fun and frankly, the most success. But I felt like the industry had changed tremendously over the last decade and founders weren't getting the help that they needed at the hardest stage, which is in those first two years. And that was largely because the funds had gotten so big, they really couldn't focus on investments where they were writing single digit million dollar checks. And so Jody from the entrepreneur side felt that very much and teamed up to start Unusual because we felt there was a big opportunity in the, in the space, in the ecosystem. Yeah. When and, and where did you and Joe T first meet? Oh, we met, I want to say, probably in 2008. We were introduced through mutual friend. At the time, I was, I was researching how virtualization was going to be disruptive to all aspects of you know, data center technologies. And so Jyoti was uh, an architect at a company called Wiley that had been acquired by CA. And we got to talking about how the monitoring space was going to be different because of how people were now building applications and using virtualization. I was new to venture. You know, he had never been an entrepreneur before, but talked about this big white space and an opportunity and we're kind of finishing each other's sentences. And so long story short, it led to an investment in app dynamics. So you were you were new at Lightspeed at the time. So was this like a, an associate or, or principal role that you had when you, you made the investment in app dynamics? Right. I was, uh, I think I was technically a senior associate, you know, right out of business school and, you know, frankly, a bit unsure of myself if I wanted to long-term be a venture capitalist investor or, you know, work in startups from an operating perspective. And the job seemed very appealing. I, I had a chance to, you know, meet a lot of people that were technical and product visionaries and talk to them about the space you know, they were in, you know, opportunities in the future. And so I, I was very lucky, right, in that I met you know, Jody, who's unbelievably talented. I tell him all the time he spoiled me. And 
yeah, that, that was my role to go out and talk to folks about these new spaces and, you know, find investments for the firm. And why are the two of you, you know, why do you make a, a complimentary team? That's a good question, Nick. I mean, what we bring to the table is kind of two sides of the same coin, right? You know, we we're investing in founders who are just like Joe T was product visionary technologists, often with a very interesting insight about why the world needs a new product in a particular space. From his side, he's built the company from scratch, you know, to well north of a thousand employees and ultimately sold it for $3.7 billion. So the operator in him, the experience, you know, he can be very helpful and is super passionate about helping founders, particularly at the seed stage. You know, in my case, I, you know, over 12 years, I looked at hundreds and hundreds of companies, invested in many dozen, and I've had a chance to see founders go through different choices, strategy, hiring, you know, and really be a, a mentor, an advisor, a coach to try to help them have the most successful path. And so they kind of get the, the old guy now, VC, and the very successful entrepreneur. And so when we invest, they get both of us. It's a good balance. I, I've got a, a number of interns working for me at the moment, many of which would love to be in the industry. One such individual has gotten a lot of feedback recently from, from San Francisco VCs that he needs operating ex- experience. You know, he needs to go found his own startup or he needs to move to SF and, and join a tech startup. If my research is correct, you were not a startup founder yourself, um, but it, it sounds like you and Joe T together probably make a, a pretty good team. Absolutely. In the sense that I, you know, the first time I founded anything, it was Unusual Ventures, <laughs> you, you know, a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do have a startup, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Venture capital is just a business like any other business. So, you know, I too was washing dishes and figuring out where to find a place for rent to rent and hiring people. So yes, but um, I did work at a couple startups before I got into venture. You know, I, I hear the, that thought a lot that you have to be an operator. I'm not, I don't agree with it. I think, you know, we all see the world from where we sit. There's a lot of good ways to be a good investor, particularly in venture capital. And history would suggest there's no formula. I mean, some some of the best venture investors of all time were not operators. You know, Peter Fenton from Benchmark, uh, Mike Moritz, right? He was a journalist at one point. Right. Some of them have, right? It's, but it's all about empathy. It's all about empathy, right? Really putting yourself in the founder's shoes, understanding, you know, what they're going through, and then, you know, caring very much about helping them. I think that's what makes a good DC. And so you don't, I don't think any one background is the only way to be good at that. So, you know, in light of helping entrepreneurs, there's some differing opinions on, on how to do so. Uh, we just had Scott Cooper on the show from Andreessen. He talked about, you know, their expansive platform. We've had a number of folks on the program that are specialists. They help in one particular area. Let's say it's customer development, sales training, could be on the fundraising side, could be on the talent side. What's your philosophy and in, in how do you get involved and in, in help out founders? So this has been, you know, a learning by experience for me. I look at the industry today and I see, you know, there's more active venture firms, there's more money available than I think ever before. And so it's not that money is what entrepreneurs, you know, are, are or at least investors are differentiating themselves by, you know, so Jody and I looked very hard at this when we started Unusual. And you're right, there's kind of the specialist model and then there's the 
some people call it multi-stage or stage agnostic platform. You know, our view is to be world-class in anything, Nick, you have to focus. Yeah. Right? Think of yourself, right? As you, as you mentor entrepreneurs, what's one of the things you always tell them? Yes, yes, that's great, but you have to focus. You have, you have to focus, right? And <laughs> all the it, time. It's the Warren Buffett the and Bill time, Gates, right? uh, you know, quote. Yeah. The two of them were asked that question, right. you know, what's the key defining thing that led to your success? And they both answered in lockstep focus. Yeah. I mean, so this whole notion that you can do every stage well, personally, I think it's marketing. I think it's just marketing and it's justification for a large amount of fees that these enormous platforms, you know, are, are extracting at the moment. Yep. If you look at music, if you look at art, if you look at sports, medicine, right? To be very, very exceptional, you have to focus, right? You don't want the same doctor who does heart surgery also delivering your baby, right? It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me or to Jyoti. And so increasingly as the funds got bigger over the last decade, they're too smart to say, Hey, we don't do speed, right? They, they don't want to give up that level, you know, that top of the funnel kind of deal flow. But if they're really honest, I think they'll tell you when you have a billion dollars to invest, it doesn't make a lot of sense as a fiduciary, right? As a responsible investor to spend as much time with a $5 million investment as you would one of your $50 million investments. And then from the founder's side, each stage of the journey, each leg is very different in terms of the challenges and, and therefore the help that you need. So what you're trying to do in the first two years is very different than what you're doing in years two to five. So we love injuries and we love the innovation they brought to the industry 10 years ago. And if you look at their model and all the services they provide, personally, you know, and, and Jody would echo this, we think it's terrific, but it's optimized for what founders need in the growth phase, not in the idea to early traction phase. Right. So we, right, we built unusual with services that help you with the problems, the challenges at that phase. Hiring those first 10 engineers, it's hard. Selling those first five customers, it's really hard. Yeah. Telling your story, right? Like not how it works, but why it matters. These are all the things that you have to do in years you know, zero, one, and two, right? And that's very different than being introduced to CIOs or C-level executives, right? That's not what founders need. And so Jody and I, you know, he lived it, right? And he said, hey, founders need more help, more stage-specific help. And so for us to be Olympic level, that's the thing we joke, or world-class, that's all we're going to do. We're going to focus on helping out founders in those early years. And that's what Unusual is all about. I love it. I love it. We, we preach this on, internally here at Newstack all the time with the team. It's all about focus. We have a very sort of gritty, gritty, hardworking hustle mentality. So these points really resonate with me. But so to clarify for the audience a bit, can you talk just briefly about the stage sector focus, sort of check size for unusual ventures? Yeah, you know, the labels are confusing uh, these days, right? I, I'd be curious your take on this, right? It, is it seed? Is it is it series A? Is it small A? Uh, we were joking last week with the, the TechCrunch folks about soil, you know, soil rounds, sort of pre-seed. <laughs> and hard for us to, you know, I don't know exactly how to, I think it's confusing for us, it's confusing for founders. We just think of it as, you know, when you have an idea, right? For us, no idea is too early. We're trying to help people go from that concept or even prototype, maybe early traction in some cases, 
to obvious product market fit. And so that's, we think of it that way. The, the obvious line in startups is pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. Yep. And it almost seems like the financing round labels are actually confusing. <laughs> but we think of ourselves as pre-product market fit investors and wanting to help founders get through that, that phase. So we'll invest anywhere from 250K on the small end to high single-digit millions when it just depends on the business model and what the company is, is in need of the most. And frankly, it's all about financing the company to the next phase. Yep. Right, Nick, I'm sure you've learned this at Newstack, right? Like the, it's not a linear function in terms of value creation for startups. It's very much a step function. You have to hit certain milestones and then there's a meaningful step up. So I joke with our team, getting 80% of the way to the moon it doesn't get you anything. <laughs> you got to get all. You got to get all the way there. So, we define the goals for on this money to make sure the company has meaningfully de-risked itself, and therefore can raise money at a higher valuation before it needs to again. Got to connect the capital with milestones. I think that might be one of the the biggest mistakes I've seen across you know an array of different high quality founders, high quality opportunities that, for whatever reason don't understand the step function or don't set out the right milestones early and don't connect sort of the capital raises to that and find themselves in a, you know, a seed funding gap or a series A crunch or whatever you may call it. Yeah. I mean, you've probably seen seed extensions become a a popular thing. A a lot of times founders, they're optimized for dilution. And I, and I, of course we understand that, but at the same time, if you, you know, if you don't take enough capital to get to those critical milestones, you know, you're obviously your valuation hasn't increased at all. And some would argue it's actually gone down because you showed poor judgment. You didn't actually raise enough money to get to the right play. Right. Um, you know, conversely, you don't want to raise too much money because then you get, I think companies can have bad habits. You know, innovation comes from constraints. We've seen that a lot. And, obviously, and you don't want the founders to over dilute themselves, but it's a fine balance. You had mentioned product market fit and that being the goal. Is your thought that that should be achieved before the, the Series A? And maybe we're, we'll define the Series A round as 20, 20 to $35 million pre, you know, achieving that, that product market fit prior to closing that round? I'd be curious what you think, but that's been my experience, certainly in the last five years. Series A's these days require proof. It's no longer conceptual investing. Right. These are traction metrics that the investors are holding founders accountable to, which demands that you've demonstrated product market fit. So if classic series A's today and enterprise software are core team, GA product and a million dollars of bookings or or ARR. Yep. That to me means that they found a way to early signs of product market fit. And that's what you know triggers a Series A these days, which is why the Series A's are now, on average, 15, you know, 20, 25 million in some cases. So the funds got bigger. People's risk appetite went down, whether they said it openly or not, because they're now writing much bigger checks. It used to be that a $5 million Series A, look, if you got it wrong, it wasn't the end of the world. 15 or 20 million, that's a much bigger thing to swallow in terms of a loss. So, pe- so investors and most funds have shifted to wanting to see more proof, which is why there's been an opportunity now in the seed market that's really opened up. 
What about a situation? So I, I actually, I just had a, a founder in yesterday from, from Florida. Um, she flew in. Uh, we had a nice three-hour working session, but she has three large customers. One is a large tech company. One is a large bank. And one is a military customer. The decision makers are different. Sales cycles are different. The, the basket size, you know, the average account value is different for each of them. Even the ROI, you know, this, this is an enterprise SaaS offering that has three different major advantages and she's hit all three, you know, with each of the different customer sets. So how do you look at a company that has shown meaningful traction? They've shown some sales velocity, but, you know, they're their offering is kind of appealing to a broad set of verticals, maybe a lack of focus there. You know, there's there's not that indication that they can just rinse repeat their way to ten million plus of ARR. What advice did you give her? The advice I gave her was that I said you should do one of two things. If you feel like you know what your beachhead segment is now, the combination of your product, your application, and your customer segment and you know where you're going to get the most progress fastest and have you know meaningful traction, then define the beachhead now and let's get after it. If you feel like you're still at the hypothesis stage and across all three of those, you don't know which one is best, then let's set up a timeline by which we can test this hypothesis and look at the different markets and make a decision. But either way, at the end of this, I felt like a decision should be made and then one of those markets should be focused on. Mm. So you were driving her to what? Focus? <laughs> Did we talk about this before? <laughs> I think we might have. So, I mean, I think that's, that's really sage advice, right? And so here's the thing. So often technical innovations are horizontally applicable. So yes, it does work in multiple markets. And so founders will often come in with, yeah, I, I have three or four different verticals. They may even have three or four different size of customers, small, medium, large, extra large. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the challenge is to go to market, right? To hire salespeople, to hire marketing people. And pointing them at one thing is how they're successful, right? You can't come to the website and have it be NyQuil, sniffling, snuffling, coughing, aching, stuff. That doesn't work for a startup, right? You, you've got to have something very specific. Same with the salespeople. What kind of sale is it? what kind of customer? Who is your user and buyer? And again, it's not that it's, it's not applicable. It's just that from a focus standpoint, a startup has to do that because you are resource constrained. And so your guidance to her is, hey, look, you got these three. That's terrific. But you got to go pick one because you got to go get those first 10, 20 customers, raise more money, live to fight on. And eventually you'll go on to other verticals. But Founders, this is one of the number one reasons founders fail because they're usually product technical people. They don't like to give up, Nick, on these other verticals. You know, they have to see that it's not about giving it up indefinitely, but what's best for the company, for the startup, is to pick one. So the joke we make at Unusual is startups in the seed stage, it's not physics hard, it's dieting hard. <laughs> Meaning you, you have to be very disciplined and that's tricky. Well, and your example is really appropriate because as I was walking through this with her yesterday, I said, I have observed some founders achieving some measure of success, albeit with very little capital efficiency. One in particular that is selling into consumers. He's selling 
a similar product with similar technology into enterprise. And he's actually got a government offering as well. And it's a really compelling product that has tons of capability. But I've seen his team evolve into three different teams. You know, his his organization has sort of dedicated engineers, you know, around the, the enterprise offering and the UX for it and the sales for it. And he's got a team, you know, of marketing folks and, and other engineers that are optimizing around the consumer offering. He's developing a new team around the government. And I don't, I don't think that was his original intent. He thought he could do everything with one team. But when you're resource constrained, as, as you mentioned, it's, it, it's, it's just really hard to do it all and do it well. Yeah, I would say it's actually impossible. You end up with 80% of what everybody needs. And the team in every way is stretched thin. To your point, even engineering, right? Because every vertical market, it has some idiosyncrasies in terms of what you need to build, how you need to tell the story, and how you need to sell. And so if you're stretching the company across more than one, and you're only a 10 or 20 person company in the first place, because that's all the capital you have, you end up with, you know, sort of mile wide inch deep offering. And uh, that's a lesson learned. I mean, I, I have lived through that mistake before. It's one of the things we try to work really hard on with, with founders when we invest. John, are there some objective items or, or metrics that indicate product market fit for you? I mean, the easiest one, Nick, is evangelical users, right? NPS? If you don't have, well, yeah, or, I mean, you can, so easy with social media these days or meetups, right? It's, you know, number one, if you're starting a company, you've got to make sure that you know who your desperate user is, right? Because if someone's not desperate, they're not going to buy from a startup. <laughs> it's, it's too, it's too, it's too risky, right? You might as well go with something that's more trustworthy, so you don't get fired. That's good. So you've got to find someone who's really desperate, and if they're desperate, that means they'll use the product even if it's buggy, right? Even if it's there's aspects of it that are probably a bit embarrassing. That's okay because they're so in need of what you're selling, of what you have, and so by talking to just a handful of users you will quickly see if A, desperate for what you are offering and B, they're delighted with what you, you know, what you provided to them. So much so that they're telling other people about it, right? There's, you know, ways to measure that, but it's also an intuitive thing, right? So people like to look at a million dollars of bookings or 10 reference customers or in consumer world, you know, thousands of users growing at some some rate, yep. 20% month over month or engagement, right? Like people have tried to quantify it, but I think at the early stage, you know, if you're waiting for all the data to give you your judgment, that's not really judgment at all, right? You, you do have to have some intuitive sense of why something's working and for who. Love it. Love it. Let's go back to when you're making a decision to invest. So you know, this in some cases you mentioned this could be really early stage. This could be, you know, at the the hypothesis sort of phase. Are there any must haves that that you need to see before you're going to cut a check? Yeah, there's you know there's a few, right? It starts with the people. It always is is about the people, right? Are they high integrity? Do they have a, a history of showing that they're honest? You know, very hardworking. Because look, startups are hard, right? You know. Many are called fewer chosen kind of thing. So they, ha they have to, you know, have demonstrated that. And then is the insight authentic, right? Did it come from experience? Yep. 
people who just, just want to start a company because it's glamorous or they saw Silicon Valley or want to make money, that doesn't get you through the inevitable troughs, right? So the idea has to be born out of experience. And this, this, they, they, there's so much passion, they can't sleep at night practically because <laughs> they so much want the world to be better. And they have this idea about how to do it. So that's number one. Number two is, is the timing right? right? Is, is it now that it makes sense to start a company in this space? You know, we joke, it's the disruption in the force, right? What, what has changed on a macro level that makes the timing perfect? Uh, because, you know, starting a company, you know, being too early is the same as being wrong. Mm-hmm. So the timing has to be right. If you're too late, the same is true, right? You, the parade's already too far ahead. You'll never catch it. But if you're too early, then you'll run out of money before you have any proof. And you've got to you've got to build the company in these stages, right? Because you're raising money in stages too. And then last, you know, this is the thing that I think is most misunderstood by a lot of founders is to raise venture capital, we have to believe that the opportunity could create a business with hundreds of millions of revenue. Because that's the business we're in, right? It's all about mega home runs. Not just home runs, but actually mega home runs. Yep. So we have to believe that the market it doesn't mean the market is big today but it means that we believe it will be and there's a real growth rate that the company can take advantage of. So it's it's those three things. And you know on the on the timing point, how does one assess if the timing is right? You know, in in light of some earlier comments we we were talking about sort of these desperate customers or your innovators early adopters, they may or may not be representative of sort of the majority of the market and often these startups aren't going to be promoting their offerings to kind of that majority market group for maybe more than five years from when you launch. So how do you frame up the timing and and assess whether the timing is right? I think this is the hardest part. And the reality is it's, it's a bit of intuition and a ton of research. So yes, if you're investing in what I would call the take a normal distribution curve, right? If you're investing in the mainstream, it's too late, right? Certainly at its for seed investors. So we like to understand the early adopters and why, like why they had to have this or why this idea at a minimum is very compelling to them. So we spend a lot of time talking to people who are early adopters, you know, particular industries. It turns out these are mostly high margin industries like technology or in media. They tend to be early adopters, right? They have extra cash to invest in the future and try new things. And so we spend a lot of time with these folks understanding what their critical issues are. You know, one of the key advantages of Unusual is actually that Jody is building a company called Harness today. So he's not just an investor who's regaling kind of the days of building app dynamics a decade ago. The problems he's solving today are the same ones that founders and their products are trying to solve. So we're very up to speed on kind of the current state of things Mm -hmm. and the current problems that people have. And so we, you know, we triangulate, we talk to CIOs, we talk to CISOs, we talk to leaders of engineering, we talk to developers. We're always trying to understand kind of at the early adopter phase, what's out there, what are their burning problems? And so when comes, someone comes in and pitches you an idea, Nick, we try to be very prepared, right? They're not educating us on why this is a problem and why, why there's a need for a solution. We try to be a step ahead of that and be very thematic. And so that's, that's just the way... I've certainly always tried to do the job, and that's how we do it at Unusual. I think it was Steve Blank on the program that said, 
you know, staying close to customers, if you do it really well, you end up looking like a, a blur to the competition. You know, the more CISOs or CIOs or whoever your customer set is that you're engaged with on a regular basis, probably the more more likely it is you're going to understand their needs. How about things that don't work out? Is there a common theme in failed investments that you've observed, John? Yeah, this might be a little counterintuitive, right? So I used to hear largely because of Steve Blank or even Lean Startup, you know, Eric Reese, that stay close to that customer. You know, you got to talk to 50 to 100 customers. That's how you'll figure out what to build. Right. And then there's this, you know, obviously the Henry Ford quote about, well, customers will tell you to build a faster horse. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, right. You also have to be a visionary. So there's, right, there's this balance. You're like you're kind of chicken and egg. Right. So the thing that has surprised me and it's been, you know, real learning is if I think back to all the companies, and there are a lot that I have seen fail over the years, I can honestly tell you, Nick, very few, if any, failed because they didn't talk to 50 or 100 customers. But that, that's, not the, that's not what caused them to fail. What caused them to fail was that they talked to those customers and they couldn't discern between who was desperate and who was just intellectually curious. That takes judgment, right? Founders want to believe that what they're building is the antidote for everybody's pain. And sometimes they believe it so much, they actually don't really ask the right questions. They don't really listen to the feedback in a way that would help them make decisions. And so, so often they build something that people weren't really desperate for, but just, it was a nice to have. So they went through the whole process that's prescribed in the lean startup or in four steps, the epiphany, you know, those books, Mm -hmm. but it was the, it was the judgment around knowing where there was real pain and where it was, Oh, that was great. Let's keep talking. Very interesting. Right. So it's such a subtle thing, but it can make all the difference. It does make all the difference between success and failure, ultimately. Is listening a skill that you try and assess for when you're working with founders? We ask them point blank, like, are you coachable? Do you have the humility to learn, to listen? You know, it's, it's 80% dogmatic and 20% pragmatic, right? Nobody hits the bullseye with their idea right out of the gate impossible. So you have to have a vision, but then you have to adjust incrementally to what the market's telling you. That's the hard part at the seed phase. So we really do get a sense of that throughout the pitch process and just talking to founders about their ideas. What do you think are maybe best practices on the founder side when they're selecting a VC? I mean, number one is references. Yep. You know, you got to talk to people about what it was really like, both in a good and a not as, you know, didn't work out so well case about how it was to engage, you know, with this investor. How active were they, right? They, you know, if you're really looking for help, you know, look, VCs are incredibly good salespeople. You, you know this, Nick. They're, they're articulate, typically. They're very smart, typically. I mean, not always, right? Case in point, <laughs> here you go. But, I, but they're good at tell, you know, telling you why they're going to be helpful. Yeah. And, and when they're they in sales mode, they're amazing. Yep. Oh, it's amazing. Right? Go to demo day these days. Like, it's flooded with a room. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, right? Like every single industry, doctors, lawyers, you name it, accountants, there's a normal distribution curve, right? There, there are some investors who are in the 1%. Right? It's just the reality, right? And right, right. something as serious as this, 
you don't want the average. You don't want your heart surgeon to be average. You shouldn't want your VC to be average either. Good point. Right? You, you want the best. You want the best. This is life or death for you and your company. So you got to do your homework, right? Call around, see how much they help, see what they're like, spend time with them. I, I think these rushed investments, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me, right? It's, uh, it's harder to get an investor off, you know, your cap table than it is probably to get divorced, you know, from a marriage. So why, why do people go so fast? At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Yeah, references are key. This this founder yesterday asked me, you know, for references, and I gave her a list, and she said, "Well, which ones?" And I said, "Any of them. <laughs> Reach out to anybody on that list. I don't care who." And she's like, "Okay, <laughs> good for you, Nick. Yeah, that. I mean, that's how it should be." Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully the feedback is positive, but I, I I feel like feel like we're we're in good shape at this point. So let's talk a bit more about unusual. We kind of jumped into a variety of, of good topics here, but tell me about this academy that you run as well as the Get Ahead platform. You know, wh- what are those and uh, what's the difference between the two? So Unusual Academy is something that we think is a very time efficient way for founders to learn from essentially what we call master practitioners, people who are exceptional in their craft. And so we took the seven most difficult challenges that a seed stage founder has to overcome, both in a, you know, an enterprise-oriented business and a consumer-oriented business. And we went and got the best people we knew in Silicon Valley and actually beyond to come and talk about their, a very specific case you know, that they, where they overcame that, that obstacle, right? They learned that superpower. And that's part of the workshops that we do. And then the other part of the workshops are to take the process that they followed and, and apply it to the company that you're working on as a founder. And then you have to teach your decisions to the rest of your, your, your group. It's a small group. So it's very much a see one, do one, teach one kind of approach. You know, I think we learn in life through suffering. That's the Catholic in me, I guess. And you've got to learn these things by doing and by, you know, really pushing yourself. Yeah. But you also need to learn from very credible people who have been there and done it before and who are also good at explaining what they did. Right? Sometimes you get, 
you know, amazing people. And they're like, well, how do you, how do you throw it 99? Like, I don't know. I just kind of take my arm and <laughs> that's not going to help the founder, right? You, you have to take the material and really break it down for them in a way that they can absorb and then apply and digest. And so, so we do that. That's here. like a series of workshops or, or lectures then? Right. It's available to 20 or 30 founding teams per year. So it, it has to be small, Nick, because our personal belief is this kind of teaching, this kind of help, it doesn't scale. Venture capital does not scale. I, I believe that through and through. Every founder's journey is unique. It's bespoke. So should the feedback and help. This idea that you can peanut butter startup help to 200 founders at a time, I, I find it a bit nonsense, right? Because mm. everybody's journey is different. So it, it's not meant to scale, right? And then, so we customize it. And then the Gap platform or the thing we call the Get Ahead platform, Gap, Jody created that. You know, he said, if I'm a seed stage founder, what do I need the most help with? So we don't just give advice, like we actually do with the companies. So we hired the best salesperson, the best marketing person, and the best technical recruiter because we think those are the things that you need the most help with as a founder. And they become a part of your team. So when we make a full investment, they become a full portfolio company. We make the Get Ahead platform available to those founders. And the Unusual Academy, is that open to non-portfolio companies? You mentioned 20 to 30 a year. I can't imagine you're, you're investing at that pace. That's correct. So we, we run an application process. We just finished one. And so we, we're starting our third, we call it the Gamma Cohort this fall. And there'll be about 17 founders, seven consumer, 10 enterprise teams that participate in it. And so we don't necessarily invest in those companies. They're, we want them to come and experience the academy to, to feel what it's like to work with us. And then some of them actually become portfolio companies after the fact. And if I'm a founder, what... What's my profile, you know, if I'm considering applying for unusual, sort of what stage and what team size and level of progress? Yeah, we have people that are, when they apply, they haven't even left their job yet. It's a sole founder or two founders working together on an idea. And they want to come and learn about, you know, finding product market fit, hiring your first 10 people and setting your culture, early fundraising. How do you sell, right? And get going. So they want to come learn from Andy Rackliffe, right? The founder of Benchmark, the CEO of Wealthfront. They want to learn from Adam Grant, right? Who wrote Give and Take, who wrote Originals, right? They want to learn from Jyoti. He, come and he talks about the early days of Harness and AppDynamics. And it's very hands-on, right? It's very small, like little tables, working four-hour sessions. And so it's usually people in the idea stage, or maybe they're six or 12 months down the road, and they're realizing that some of this stuff is just really hard. And so... Maybe they raise from five or 10 angels. A lot of that going around these days, right? Big syndicates. The problem with that is nobody has enough of a vested interest to really help the founders. A lot of the seed stage strategy is spray and pray, right? It's, it's playing roulette, Yep. which is great for the firm. It's a good business model, right? They get, they get, all they need is one that works and they're talking about it at their cocktail parties. But what about all the founders who need actual help? That model doesn't work well. So... That, you know, they often apply to the academy and they've raised some quality folks, but they're just not getting enough help, real help. They're getting advice, but no one's rolling up their sleeves, you know, getting in the foxhole with them. And that's, that's our model. Love it. And is it like an accelerator? Is there an equity exchange and an investment? No, 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 not at all. I mean, you, you come and do the academy. That's, I mean, I, don't, I think those accelerator programs, frankly, take a too big of a tax on yeah. the really good companies. Yep. 
right? They give up way too much of their company than they should. Now, it's a good business model, right? If you do hundreds of companies a year and you own 7% of all of them, yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't really care if most of them don't work. We just have a totally different approach, right? It's, it's like, no, we want to care. This doesn't scale. We work with a select few and we dive in more deeply. And it's not an indictment of anyone else's model. I want to be clear. It's just, we don't think it's the, it's the best one. Not the, it's not what's best for founders. And that was our promise. When we started Unusual, we would always put the founders first. What do they need most? That is at the, the center of the ethos of Unusual. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've debated at length on accelerators with, with a variety of folks, and we've had some really good ones on the program. You know, David Cohen from Techstars and, and David Brown. And, you know, I was talking a couple of years ago with an angel about Paul Graham and NYC, and, and they do amazing things there. But the angel was telling me, you know, you shouldn't be price sensitive because Paul Graham says, regardless of the company, you know, you should, you should invest regardless of the valuation. It's more about getting at. And, you know, I, I was kind of like, well, this is also the guy that has invested in hundreds of companies at very, very low valuations, getting 7% equity. <laughs> so are you going to listen to what he says or are you going to look at what he does? <laughs> I think it's a very good, uh, Y Combinator has a very good business model. I'm, I'm not as convinced that as it's grown, it's actually what's best for certain founders. Well, I, I love this unusual academy concept. And actually, we just did a, a little angel round into a, a space tech company. And, you know, I'd love to send it your way. The founder is, is very special. But yeah, let's, let's transition on. Talk a bit about the state of the seed market. You know, I've noticed over the past year or so, the percentage of, of VC dollars is, is declining quite a bit at the early stages. I think it's the lowest level or it's at the lowest levels that the industry has seen in the past five years. Why do you think this is the case, John? Well, I mean, I think a couple of reasons. One, as companies have stayed private longer, Nick, you can make a lot of money as an investor doing growth stage investing, right? Is those gains that used to happen in the public market, because companies went public after year seven or year eight, they're now being pushed off to year 10, 11, 12. And we're talking about hundreds of millions or billions in some cases of value creation that happens in that window. And so, you know, investors, look, there's two kinds of VCs at heart, right? There's the private company investors, and then there's the company builders. So if you're biased, and, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, I'm just saying you have to be clear about that, right? And so, Private company investors are money managers. That's their job. And so if you can make a multiple on a 50 or $100 million check, and that's what gets you out of bed in the morning, that's the opportunity. So I think the focus has really shifted because that's what's changed in, the, in sort of the macro ecosystem of private companies. The second thing is interest rates have been really low for the last, you know, call it decade. And so, you know, investors have flooded to VC funds, which is part of the reason they've become so big in terms of assets under management. And so when you have all those assets under management, look, you're not going to raise a billion dollars and write $205 million checks. Right? <laughs> no. Right? It's not going to, it doesn't make sense. So they have to write bigger checks, which causes them to focus again on later stage companies because they don't want to take as much risk with those bigger checks. Yeah. The state of the seed market has changed dramatically as a result of those two things. Urgency to deploy lots of capital, right? As these funds get bigger and bigger, they got a mandate. They got to they got to deploy it, and they have their deployment periods. And 
to your point, you know, the, the motivations can shift. I'm not saying in all cases they do, but they certainly can shift to, uh, you know, AUM and management fees instead of carry. Yeah. I mean, look, I, hopefully the VCs are still aligned with founders and when the founders win, the VCs win, but you do have to scratch your head a little bit. You know, if a VC fund makes a 2% or 2.5% annual management fee, they collect that for 10 years on a billion or billions of dollars. You can do the math, right? Whether the investments work out well or not, the VCs are going to they're going to do very well. Yeah, you know, you've said in the past that the biggest mistake a founder can make is taking an investment from a mega fund. Why? At the seed stage. Oh, I see. Um, it just Got goes it. back, right? It's what, it's what we're talking about, right? Um, no, I think their mega funds are great for the next phase. For actually, for multiple stages, Series A, B, C. I see. Actually, I think there's huge advantages to that, right? They can invest through multiple rounds. They're consistent. You know, they, they know the company well. I think it's great for founders. I'm just saying specifically at the seed stage sure. where your energies are not aligned, right? Because they can't spend a bunch of time with you when you need the most help. We also think it's the hardest phase. So back to our specialization thread, right? Like take a VC who, I know this is self-serving, but it doesn't have to be us, but take a VC who's very focused on helping you with the seed phase. Then all those mega funds will be waiting for you. Hit, hit your traction milestones, and you can have a nice competitive process. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, while we're talking about VCs and these funds, how about some thoughts on the LP side? Do you have any examples of unintended consequences or, or challenges that you know certain types of LPs behind a VC fund can, can present? Yeah, I mean, this was a hot topic last year, right, that we were on the record about regarding... You know, number one, there's at a minimum there should be more transparency. Yep. Right. You know, we we should all know as founders who the VCs are taking money from. You know, who am I making money for? It's unfortunately not transparent, and we think there should be more of that. Now, secondarily, there were some questions about large sovereign wealth, and you know, I think some investors with maybe some would argue questionable human rights stances and things like that. I'd rather. People can make up their own minds that that gets into politics and religion. You know, that's that's not for us to weigh in on. Mm-hmm. But at a minimum, the transparency should be there so that founders should ask, hey, where does your money come from? Like, who am I? Who are we all working for? Because as a founder, you should care. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I don't know. Do you have a point of view on that? I'd be curious what you think. I'm not far. I mean, I've got 40 LPs, um, but no squeaky wheels really good sort of supportive folks, but most of these are family offices, high net worth. I haven't gotten far along enough yet to have my own experience with how that can affect either, you know, my own portfolio companies or let's say one of my portfolio companies raises capital from from somebody that has taken on LP money from um, spurious sources. So I, I don't have personal experience, so it's hard for me to weigh in. Yeah, I mean we we were in the fortunate position that we when we started unusual because of our track records, we, we could be, be choosy. I recognize that. And for us, it mattered, right? We wanted to work for children's hospitals, research foundations, nonprofit endowments. You know, we deliberately went after some of the historically black colleges, United Negro College Fund. And everybody unusual, even our, and our founders care very much about this. You know, if you come to the office, you'll see the pictures of the hospitals and the pennants from the schools. And we want to drive wealth creation back to you know, causes that matter. Sure. 
it's one of the things we we hope we put pressure on the industry to do more of that. Certainly from that standpoint, I, I couldn't agree more. John, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? You know, I think it would be very interesting to talk to founders who are multiple, you know, repeat founders, Nick, mm-hmm. about just what's just what's changed in the last five, 10 years. I mean, it's so different, right? The funding environment, the selling environment, right? The hiring environment, you know, I think for your users, your listeners, right? Like just staying, you know, hearing that firsthand perspective, talking about it. I'm a huge student of startups. Like I think it's part of the best, one of the best parts of the job. Mm-hmm. And so I would, you know, I would encourage you to think about founders who can, who have that kind of perspective. And it's hard because a lot of them, if they're successful, they don't do it. They don't do something else. There's no repeat act. It's a little bit of a plug, but I would definitely give, you know, I would encourage you to have Jyoti Bonzel on the program because I think he's going to be the only, you know, question mark, but I, I can't think of many founders and enterprise, right? Enterprise technology, who's going to have like two, maybe three, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. And so he's building harness now. And I think his perspective on just starting a company a decade ago and building one now would be really valuable. Love it. John, what's the one thing you know you need to get better at? Oh, balance, Nick. <laughs> uh, That's all. Well, you know, my, look, my dad got sick when I was a kid. He got MS. I swore when I do, did this job, I would not, not, you know, miss out on my kids. time with my wife, right? These things, you know, my faith, these things are so important to me. So it's an all in job, right? This idea that you could have life, a balanced life as a VC is, is nonsense, right? It's like an Olympian telling you, Hey, I need to be more balanced. Yeah. Like, no, that's, that, look, that's the deal, right? Like it's a hard all in job. And at the same time, you can never lose sight of like what matters most, which is the people you love and who love you and your life. So I just always need to like, make sure that that's the center and I'm doing the best I can. What investor has influenced you most? Oh, that's an easy one. Andy Ratcliffe. I'm so blessed to have him in my life. You know, he, he was my teacher back at Stanford Business School in 2004. And as the founder of Benchmark, as the founder and CEO of Wealthfront, you know, as a true teacher and like just amazing human, he's, he's, he's changed my life for the better in so many ways. And finally, John, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Unusual.vc. Come check us out. There you go. He is John Vrionis. John, this is probably the most fun conversation, podcast, regular conversation aside, probably the most fun conversation I've had in this year. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you got some Chicago ties. I hope you ping me when you're in town and can't wait for the next one. All right, brother. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate you having me. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.